The Home Show with Sinead Ryan on News Talk. Good morning and welcome along to The Home Show. I'm Sinead Ryan. Coming up this week, is there life on Mars? Well, not yet, but NASA is planning on some of the human race living there. So what would a Martian house look like? The first home scheme, it's almost two years in, is it fit for purpose? And Jennifer Sheehan will be telling us all about outdoor saunas. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You can find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100 and you can listen back to the show or all our podcasts, which are up on the newstalk.com site or on the Newstalk app, which is powered by Go Loud. Now, morning, everyone. There is a, a possible, I hate to break it to you, a general election coming up later this year. Uh, of course, the locals and the Europeans are in the summer. And housing for many people remains the number one issue again. Successive budgets have seen the government throwing money at first-time bars, it has to be said, uh, to try and get them on the property ladder. And while we all wait for all the new homes to come on stream um, in sufficient numbers, first-time buyers very often and still can't find a house or can't get the money together to buy one. But if you're not a first-time buyer, then your taxes are paying for all of the support schemes that the government have put in place in lieu of the new houses that are all coming to help to buy and the first home schemes. Are you happy with that? Does it mean less money for other things like healthcare and education? Well, we'll be examining one of these schemes with its CEO a little bit later. But I'd love to know your thoughts, whether you're a first-time buyer yourself or whether you're a parent whose kids can't find a house and are boomeranging back home or whether you're simply a taxpayer who thinks that we shouldn't be doing this. Do get in touch with us, the home show at newstalk.com or on socials. And you are very welcome along to the show. In a case of truth being stranger than fiction last week, NASA put out a call for four volunteers to spend a year living on a 3D printed replica of Mars in preparation for its proposed missions to the Red Planet in the 2030s. And with private companies now landing on the moon, it seems the sci-fi dream of living on another world might not be as far away as we think. So what would an off-world house look like? Well, Justin B. Hollander is Professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University in the States and author of The First City on Mars, An Urban Planner's Guide to Settling the Red Planet. Justin, uh, you are very welcome along to The Home Show. Well, I'm happy to be here. Now, this does seem like science fiction. How close are we to doing this? And is it essential for the future of humanity? Yeah, well, I, I think we're closer than you, than we might think. This is not uh, technologically an infeasible thing for humans to land on Mars. It's expensive, and once they get there, keeping them alive would not be easy. Um, but this is definitely something that could happen. And if we can send people there, then we can colonize Mars. So, so you know, there are various space agencies that are talking about you know doing that in the next couple decades, but there are private companies that that are hoping to do it even sooner. Now, urban planning uh, and planners are used to challenges in all kinds of environments, but this must be a new one on, <laughs> on the urban planning system. And there are particular challenges when it comes to settling on, on another planet. So talk, let's talk through them because I, I know that, you know, these are things that have to be overcome if this is going to be successful I- in the future. And the first one has to be temperature. Now, talk to me about 
Mars and in ter- uh, you know in terms of how hot and how cold it gets. Um, yeah, so on a comfortable day in the summer in the most uh, appropriate equator location on Mars, um, it, it can be the equivalent of about uh, 10 degrees Celsius. So, you know, this is a a very lovely climate. Okay, that's not bad. (laughs) At night, forget about it. Um, You know, so so it's uh, most of the time, most of the year, people would would die, um, you know, within minutes of being exposed to the climate. But there are there are times when, you know, it's not it's not so not such a bad environment. So so we have to live um, inside. Um, you know, most of the time and in, in insulated environments and, and underground. Underground. So that would both protect from the temperature, which has these extremes, but also maybe avoid, uh, there is radiation uh, on these planets. Oh, yeah. I mean, so we have a, a really terrific atmosphere here on Earth. Um, not so good on Mars. It's much thinner. And then there's like a lot of a lot of excitement about uh, colonizing the moon. Moon has no atmosphere. Mm. So so what that does is that that makes it a lot more dangerous in, in terms of radiation. Now, I know that um, some of the planners have got their inspiration from from homes that are built in the more extreme parts of Earth. And I'm thinking here of of the igloo, you know, maybe in, in the Arctic regions um, or you know, the yurt. Is, is it that kind of a shape that we're looking at, that type of a uh, an insulated cavity? Yeah. So so that shape has really, throughout human history, continued to be a really effective design. And, and there's two main reasons. One is they're very effective. That, that round shape is really effective at managing uh, wind and then keep, keeping uh, the occupants uh, more comfortable. But the other thing is for construction purposes, uh, that shape uh, doesn't require the same kinds of uh, structural forces uh, to support than uh, that. Imagine like a typical kind of rectangular or cube style building. So, so yeah, a lot of real advantages to that igloo or, or yurt style. Mm. So we're not going to have townhouses peppering the surface <laughs> off Mars anytime soon, right? Um, now, when it comes, you know, seriously to to thinking about sending astronauts up there to live for an extended period of time, how they live and, and the interiors and all of that actually do make a difference. Now, we're used to seeing on movies, everything is steel and high tech and glass and all of that thing. It shouldn't be like that, though. That's not ideal. Yeah, so that's really true. We really need to have certain types of shapes and patterns and colours uh, as humans uh, that we see this on Earth, that that uh, homes that have those kinds of kind of stark, really blank walls and steel those are not comfortable places. People don't like living in those places. Uh, so we, we, we've learned that through our own research here on Earth. So it's the same thing on Mars. You'd have to create environments that have comfortable natural materials, lots of plant life. That idea of a biophilia, love of nature, um, is really ingrained in us. Did you know that humans share about 50% of our DNA with plants? We, we're not just kind of like lovers of nature, we are nature. And, and so while Mars doesn't have that same nature, if humans are going to thrive psychologically, if we're going to feel good and have high quality mental states, we need to be surrounded by that same 
uh, earth-based nature. Mm. So, of course, you know, we'd be required to grow food uh, up there and, you know, sustain ourselves effectively becoming kind of self-sufficient. So plant and plant life must be one of the major experiments that is going on at the moment. Yeah, and there have been uh, numerous really successful experiments. Uh, a lot of stuff has happened on the International Space Station. Um, that's pretty close analog to what it would be like to be on Mars. You know, up there, there's uh, really no gravity. There's some gravity on Mars, but much less. Um, there's no air to breathe. <laughs> there's no water to drink, <laughs> food. Right? So, so they've been able to, for over two decades, sustain human life. Uh, in low Earth orbit up there. So so there's every reason to believe that we can do the same uh, on Mars. It's just a little bit further away. Mm, just a little bit, exactly. Now, you mentioned gravity there. And of course, the difference in gravity, you know, would make for a very different kind of living experience. And we know that from astronauts who have been to space and come back, even for short periods, you know, things like their bones, their joints, um, the exercises that they have to do on the International Space Station, Station to make sure that um, they stay healthy that's going to become a key component of the spaces they live in, isn't it? Yeah, there's no question that that people will be different because of all of because of the reduced gravity. And you know, there's kind of an idea that that's out there that over time, people living on Mars won't really be Earthlings anymore. They'll be Martians. So <laughs> there will be a change. And, and so they might not be able to so easily come back to Earth um, and, and uh, frolic with us in the same way. <laughs> yeah, and actually, it's fascinating to me that over time, and we're talking probably here decades and decades, if not centuries, uh, if this evolution uh, as it is happens, then uh, presumably the the nature of being a human being will change. And there may even have to be babies born, you know, on the moon or on Mars. I know these are <laughs> pretty profound uh, questions to consider. Um, and then you did allude to this in, in your opening remarks about do we need to have another planet, uh, another place off mm. of Earth to survive? And um, uh, Elon Musk has uh, has spoken very uh, vociferously about this this need to have another planet just in case. Um, mm. So yes, I think that 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 can be very compelling. Well, now back on Earth and firmly on on the ground, what kind of urban planning lessons or architectural lessons have we? learnt from our time on the International Space Station. We've had lots of people going up and down there and they've had to plan for these things. I mean, like we know from building the simplest of properties on Earth, you need plumbers and engineers and bricklayers and all that kind of thing. What professions will become important and, and how would we go planning a colony? Yeah, well, so we have, uh, we've definitely learned a lot uh, and there's this uh, burgeoning movement, at least here in North America, uh, winter cities movement. They, they've really kind of embraced this idea that just really challenging environments require a different set of skills. A plumber needs to have different tools. Um, an architect needs to have different tools, and, and, and so does an urban planner. Um, and it's really about using uh, underground spaces more, more effectively uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal. I mean, you could spend 
an entire year in Montreal and never come above the surface <laughs> because of all of the <laughs> underground city is just so complete. And I mean, it's in the summer is a lovely city, but in the winter, you really don't need to. Um, so, so I think we can learn a lot from those experiments in, in these kinds of uh, challenging environments, whether in low Earth orbit or further away. Um, and, and then apply those to, to life here mm. on Earth. And I suppose if you have people living together in very close proximity for a long period of time, it's a little bit like the Big Brother house. You do have to mind things like mental health and, and how you live as a community. Um, so, so there's a whole thing of environmental psychology. T- talk to me a little bit about that, uh, Professor, about how that would change or what we would have to do to make that comfortable for people who are going to colonise planets. So being in a foreign environment is stressful, right? That's something as like a baseline anywhere you travel. And being in an environment that's really far away from where you're from, uh, tens of millions of miles away further, that's going to be even more stressful. So we really need to find not only uh, ways to help people get along with each other in close quarters and, and, and all that, but we have to find ways for people to connect to that new environment at that really kind of subliminal level. And so so that's why the kind of design choices that have to be made in creating that that colony are really important. and and they have to they have to really evoke our humanness, and that's that's an earthbound humanness. Uh, you know, we evolved on the African savanna. Mm-hmm. So we seek out those kinds of environments. and we need to find ways um, to make a Martian colony uh, resonate with with that kind of evolved uh, human need. Even if over time people will likely evolve to be to be more Martian, um, at least those early colonists are are, are not going to do well if if they don't feel comfortable. Mm. And we know already uh, that the space station, for instance, is terribly cramped. I mean, you know, there's no gravity. So people are kind of tying themselves onto a vertical bed or, you know, the personal (laughs) space is very, very uh, difficult to come by. Now, that has to change if we're going to have a long-term future uh, off-world. Yeah, and and you you mentioned this uh, project that's going on right now and at NASA here in the US there there's um, creating these analogs to give you a sense of what it would be like to be um, in a Martian colony and they use 3d printers to build this habitat mm. talk so, to me about the habitat what does it look like what's in it yeah so it's uh, very simple but it has a dome kind of environment to kind of protect the inhabitants from what would be radiation and cold, though that they they didn't introduce radiation. I'm glad to hear it. Um, but I think it is cold, um, as cold as they can make it. And yeah, and, and it's very, it is very small. Um, it's very small space, just with some basic crew space for crew functions mm. and some science experiments, and then communication technologies. Um, that's one of the interesting things they're they're going to be testing is which how long it takes to send messages between Earth and Mars, uh, a simple email message of a sentence could take 40 minutes to, to transmit. Right. Depending on like how far apart the... You're not the, going to be streaming succession there up any time <laughs> soon. <laughs> right. So there is a lot of work, obviously, to do on this. And do you see the challenges that lie more in the psychological elements of what we need to do here or on the practical, the building elements of these, effectively, what are modular homes? 
Um, yeah, no, I, th I think it's both. Um, th there's been this uh, kind of groundswell of, of interest in, in developing a kind of new profession that is really at the intersection of psychology, uh, astronomy, space science, engineering, and urban planning and architecture. This kind of space urbanist field, uh, it, it, there's this growing interest. And, and, you know, what's going on right now uh, in, in outer space is, is so fascinating because there's this intelligence that's telling us that, that Russia wants to uh, introduce nuclear weapons into outer space. Well, so we need to be thinking about space in a new way, that the kind of old ways of, of considering space as a kind of neutral environment isn't going to fly anymore. So, so we need to be aware of all of these dimensions, whether it's security, architecture, psychology. Um, and, and I think it, it really demands a kind of really new discipline uh, involving that training at the, at the intersection of all those topics. Mm. And finally, um, Professor Hollander, would you like to be one of the first inhabitants <laughs> of Mars Colony? No, thanks. No, I mean, why not? After all that, you were so positive about how it's all going to work. Well, I have to tell you, I, I've done this research over the last uh, couple of years, you know, st really studying Mars. And the more I study it, the more I appreciate, I appreciate what we have here. I mean, we have just such a wonderful planet. And um, so I love it dearly and I love the people on it. And I, I don't, <laughs> I don't want all right. Well, listen, uh, Justin B. Hollander, Professor of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts and author of The First City on Mars. Uh, thank you so much for explaining us all that on The Home Show and for all listeners out there. Would you like to be the first inhabitant of the Mars colony? Uh, how would you live? What would it look like? Who would you bring with you if you could? Uh, Justin, thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show uh, and uh, for, for joining us so early in the morning. You're very, very, uh, we're very grateful to you. Now, the first home scheme launched in the summer of 2022 aimed at helping first-time buyers get on the property ladder. So almost two years on, year and a half on, we thought we'd take a look at how it's going and who's benefiting from it. Joining me now to discuss this is Michael Broderick, CEO of the First Home Scheme. Michael, you're very welcome to studio. Thank you very much, Annette. Good morning to you. Now, for those that haven't come across this first, just give us a brief rundown of what the First Home Scheme is. I mean, effectively, it's a second mortgage from the state. Yeah, well, I would I would disagree with that. But look, we can get to that in, in a moment. Um, in effect, this is a scheme that was introduced by Minister O'Brien in July of 2022. And the purpose of the scheme is to bridge that gap that we constantly hear about that first-time buyers, the people who are trying to be first-time buyers have between their mortgage, deposit and the cost of the new home. And that gap is something that we can fill in the first home scheme. We give individuals an amount and that's determined by a number of different factors which I can discuss in a moment but we give them an amount and then we take an equity share in their property and they can repay that at any time in the future uh, at a time of their choosing and you mentioned there at the outset that it was like a mortgage and that's one of the reasons that it's not like a mortgage because there's complete flexibility in terms of when the individual repays it. They repay it when they decide, when they're in a position to do it. In addition to that, uh, for the first five years there is no interest. There is what's known as a service charge from the beginning of year six onwards and that starts at 1.75%. But again, as with the actual amount itself, there's complete flexibility in terms of how an individual repays that. So it's a cheap mortgage. No, I, well, would, I, mean, I would argue state, that it's not a well, mortgage at all. Well, the state is taking, much like a bank would, a stake in your home until you've paid it off uh, and it's a loan. So, I, I mean, 
without getting into the semantics mm. of it, you, you are bridging the gap, as you said, between what they can afford and how much the house costs. And yes, it seems to be very flexible and they can pay it back uh, in a long time, but it, it's not a gift. It, it, no, it know. certainly isn't a gift. Yeah. And even the, the service charge which I was talking about there, I mean, that can be rolled up at the customer's uh, request and there is no um, interest on that. So simple interest. So again, it's non-compounding, mm. uh, which clearly you would have with your, inter- uh, with your mortgage. Okay, now how, you, you mentioned some of the restrictions there and I know one of them is, for instance, that it only applies to new homes and to first time buyers. Um, is, is that the case? Or Yeah, that's exactly yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah, so it's first time buyers uh, and then it's only new homes, be they uh, houses or in apartments, um, the scheme can be used and um, it can be used up to uh, properties up to a value of 500,000 in some local authority areas, but each local authority has its own price ceiling in place. So people can avail of up to 20% if they're using the help to buy or up to 30% if they're not using the help to buy in the context of the overall price of the property. Okay, so that answers my next question because the help to buy which most people now will be familiar with is a refund effectively of your tax paid over the last four years to a maximum of 30,000, I think. So you can use these two schemes together under certain circumstances. Yeah, and the two schemes actually work really well together because what most people actually use the help to buy for is to put their deposit together because our scheme, you must have a minimum of 10% deposit in addition to mortgage approval and then we can plug that gap that exists after that. So you can't use this as part of your deposit. You, You know, you can't trot along to a bank and say, look, I have all this money sitting here. Yeah, that's correct. The first home scheme cannot be used as part of the deposit. You must have that 10%. And that's where it fits very neatly with the help to buy because a lot of people will will, will draw down the help to buy and they will then use that as part or all of their their 10% deposit. Okay, now give us some of the numbers then, Michael. How many people have availed of this? Um, What's the average amount of, of finance that you give them uh, and how how is the scheme going? Yeah, it's going really well from our perspective. I mean, we're delighted with the level of interest and the level of uptake. Um, as with any new scheme when it was launched in July 2022, it was a little bit slow to get off the ground because of the low level of awareness out there. Mm. We're still working on the awareness and trying to increase that right across the country. But certainly in, in the main areas of purchasing at the moment, there is a high level of awareness there. And in terms of numbers, at the end of the year, we had seven and a half thousand individuals registered uh, for the scheme on our website with uh, over 3,000 approvals and we had almost 1,300 people in their homes having used the scheme. So there was big variances there in some of those numbers and the reason for that is that, um, you know, people are, uh, it's a big purchase, obviously it's a very emotional purchase, people buying their first house, we've all been there, but, you know, it does take people a bit of time from the time they decide that they're going to go out and shop around, get a property. So there are people at varying stages in the purchase cycle when they come to us. Some people are only beginning to think about it, so hence the high number of registrations. Others have their mortgage approval or in principle at least and then they make a full application and they get approval from us. So is it a good idea then, maybe up front before you start the whole thing, to, like, can you apply for this in advance? Because obviously you don't know what you're spending, you don't know what your gap is, you don't know how much, it's not like the help to buy where it's a, it's a fixed set amount and revenue say, this is how much tax you've paid in the last four years, here's a letter that you can, yeah. you can kind of use. It sounds to me like then the first home scheme has to be done at the 
kind of the, the other end of that process. Yeah, so 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 depending on where people are at in that cycle of, of purchase cycle, um, they can reg- if they're only beginning it and they're thinking about purchasing property, they can actually register with us and hence why we have 7,500 registrations. Okay. The next stage then they go and talk to their lender, find a lender and what we recommend is is that they decide on the lender because people do shop around and rightly so. Yeah. Get the best now it's a little there. bit, sorry to interrupt, it's a little bit restrictive because you're only doing this deal with three retail banks, AIB, and its, par- and its sister banks, Bank of Ireland and PTSB. So that kind of rules out maybe some of the other non-bank lenders for well, also consumers. Just to be clear, EBS and Haven as yeah, part which of the are AIBs. So there's yeah. a total of five lenders in there. And I suppose the key point is, is the scheme is open to any authorised lender in Ireland to actually join. And for, as a CEO of this scheme, I'm really keen that we have all lenders. In fact, uh, where I would like to get to is that every single lender in Ireland is actually is a member or part of the scheme. Okay. Um, but there is a reason, I suppose, why it's limited to, to to those banks at the moment and you know it's often touted that this is a government scheme and it absolutely is in the context of it was driven and and and, and very much a, a key part of the housing for all strategy mm. but it should also be remembered the banks are key players in this as well in that of the 400 million euro fund the banks actually provide 200 million euro of that mm. so in that takes case it's only fair that people then could get, have to get their mortgage from the bank and actually 50% of each drawdown is actually funded by the institution to who's providing the mortgage to the individual okay Okay, I mean, from a legal perspective then, I mean, the banks are obviously on board with this or the three banks are on board with this, so they're happy enough with how it works. But from from a legal perspective then, who has the first lien on the property? I mean, is it is it the bank that's given you the ninety percent mortgage, or is it is it the state? Is it you guys? No, it's the it's the primary lender. So in that case, it's the mortgage provider. So the mortgage provider will have a first charge in the normal way that they do on a property when you get a mortgage from. Yeah. Them. And what we have then is a is an instrument known as an inhibition, which in effect is a second charge behind the mortgage provider. And an important point here is, and again, a, a clear reason why it's not akin to a mortgage is that we do not have recourse to the individual; we have recourse to the property. Owner. So what that means uh, is that we can't chase the person. We can't chase the person through the courts and repossess unless there is one caveat, and that is unless they do something um, that seriously damages the property. So, for example, they dig a big hole in the front garden or something like that. But in the ordinary run of the mill, um, if an an individual is unfortunate enough to fall into arrears, we do not have recourse to them. We merely have recourse to the property. Okay. Um, Now, Michael, um, the average support being provided by First Home to date is around 67,000. Now, if you couple that with the maximum from the first from the uh, help to buy, that's 30,000. I mean, giving a first time buyer effectively 100,000 quid against their new home. I mean, I'm sure they're delighted and why wouldn't they be? But isn't it simply saying to developers, slap on an extra 90 or 100 grand onto that house. The state will pick it up. The taxpayer will pick it up. It's just price chasing, surely. Yeah, look, that's a fair challenge and and that's something that many in the past have made as well. And that's something we're extremely conscious of. And I suppose there's a few things that we have done and are doing to ensure that that's not the case. So first and foremost, there is a concept of price ceilings in place and those price ceilings are very thoroughly reviewed. And there's a lot of work that goes into arriving at those. And what they in effect do is they 
maximise out the price of a, of a property in a particular local authority area. So that's the first thing. The other thing I'd say is that, you know, there's no evidence that we have seen to date and nobody has provided us with any evidence to suggest that the first home scheme has been responsible for any of the price increases. Well, the central bank have said that the, all these support measures are inflationary. Yeah, and I think that's a kind of a, a broad statement in the sense that, and, you know, if you look at them, of course, it would, you would, it would suggest that, you know, they're going to contribute to inflation. But um, as I'm sure you're probably aware, Sinead, there was a very uh, detailed and thorough um, investigation or, or report provided by the SCSI, a reputable body, just before Christmas. And they actually gave a very detailed breakdown of the um, costs and where, where they come from and what each cost leads to and in terms of why the uh, house prices have inflated by the level they had um, mm. over the last few years. Yeah. So um, that's very, and, and it did not mention certainly the first home scheme in the context of price increases there. So we, as I said, have not seen any evidence of that today. It's something we're really, really conscious Central of and we're wrong. a close eye. No, I'm not suggesting for a second that the Central Bank is wrong. But what I'm saying is, is um, we have not seen any strong evidence or any evidence indeed out there to suggest that the reason that house prices are going up is attributable to the first home scheme. And if I might, there's one other point. Yep. This is a key one. We have looked at the counties in which um, there's been a lot of house price inflation over the last, and, and as you're aware, um, that's very much across the country, right across all counties. Mm. Um, and a lot of those counties, we have done very little business in because there's been a limited number of, of new homes. So that would suggest that there is no correlation between house price inflation and the use of the first home scheme. Now, uh, finally, Michael, your budget, your fund that was given to you to, to sort all this out was a 400 million. Um, I, on my very rudimentary maths, back of an envelope stuff, uh, it would seem to me you've spent maybe a little over half that so far in terms of drawdowns. Um, will the scheme wind up when the money's gone? Um, good question. And uh, yeah, roughly roughly, probably 50% in terms of drawdowns at this point in time. Um, certainly, I know the, the current government are very supportive of the scheme. And Minister O'Brien is certainly very, very, takes a very personal view and, and interest in it. And, um, you know, certainly he, they, they haven't absolutely committed, but they have been very positive in saying that, look, they will continue to keep it under review. Mm. And if other additional funding is required, it's something they will give serious consideration to. All right. Michael Broderick, CEO of the First Home Scheme. Thanks for joining us on the home show. Thank you very much, Jenny. We've probably all had that experience of going to the gym with great workout intentions, only to spend the whole session hiding in the sauna. It's understandable and a much easier way to break a sweat. But what if you didn't even need to leave your home to get that spa experience? Well, who better to ask than Jennifer Sheehan, former Home of the Year winner. Uh, Jennifer, you are a big fan of the home sauna. I couldn't be a bigger fan because I don't want other people in my sauna. I don't want to go in after a sweaty gym session where it's a lot of other people sitting around after their own sweaty gym sessions. I want my own sauna, thanks very much. Now, what are the benefits? Before we get on to the prices and the house and all the shopping you've done for us, what are the benefits of a, a sauna? Yeah, and this is kind of new to me because if I'm perfectly honest, as much as I love a sauna... I'm not a very hot person. I kind of prefer cold, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. I like the plunge pools. But the benefits are numerous. I mean, I'm really, I'm becoming such a massive convert here, right? So it, obviously there's muscle relaxation and mood, well-being, etc. So that's great. It increases your heart rate in a fairly safe manner and it increases your circulation. It temporarily lowers your blood pressure. It stimulates the release of serotonin, the happiness uh, hormone. And there's this is new, right? So this is new research that I've come across. 
it activates what's called heat shock proteins. So when you expose your body to heat, which happens during exercise because you get very hot when you're lifting those heavy weights, your body releases these molecules. They're called heat shock proteins. It makes your body more resilient to stress. It's good for your immune system. It's good for your nervous system. And you don't even have to work out. So forget the gym altogether. You can just sit in the sauna. Right. You heard it from me. No. Take it as gospel. I'm not a doctor, but I'm right about this. Of course, <laughs> the Scandinavians are way ahead of the game yeah. on this, as they are on many things we know. I mean, there isn't a Finnish home <laughs> or village or Swedish one that is without a sauna. Yeah. Mind you, they've all the ice. You can jump into the freezing cold after it. And they're all very happy up there, aren't they? They live longer. <laughs> okay, and okay. there's suggestions that it... it anyway. You're making a link. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, now, what, my first thought when it came to having a sauna at home... Uh, and specifically, we're going to look at outdoor saunas because very few of us would have the space to convert a spare room or an yeah. under the stairs loo or whatever. I'm sure it can be done into a sauna. Um, is the cost of running one because there's all the coals and chimney and heat and all that kind of thing. So what did you find out there? I can't believe how cheap it is to run these things. Because right. to be honest, when I when I thought about the concept of a sauna at home for me it just felt a little bit vulgar I was like what a waste of electricity what a waste of money Yeah, buttons it costs about 90 cents an hour to run the least efficient home sauna wow so all you need it's because they're built so well so if you're buying one you know ready to install uh, it's incredibly well insulated but it's so small that it actually doesn't require that much energy to heat it up. So your traditional sauna, one with an electric stove in it, uh, it takes about, you know, 45 to 60 minutes roughly to heat it up. Um, but it's a little small electric stove, about six kilowatt stove, and that is plenty. And it's so roughly, this is back of a napkin calculations on, you know, average Irish electricity prices, about 90 cents. And that's for the traditional one. You can also get a, an infrared sauna. We'll come back to that, but that's my personal favourite. Mm. That's only about 30 cents to heat that up because it's incredibly efficient. Right. Well, that's interesting because unlike the hot tubs, which we've talked about before, you don't exactly. have to leave them on all the time. They are really, really expensive because yeah. you have to keep them. They take up. all night to heat up. Yeah. I mean, that's, a yeah. Real, that's a real money burner, that one. Yeah. OK, so, so you've kind of sold me then on the benefits and on the price. Um, of running it now. I running mean, buy it. Buy it first. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you need if you're considering a sauna? And they do sell them in Ireland. We'll come on to suppliers yes. in a bit. So wh what is the minimum that you have to have in your back garden to be able to operate, uh, to have one? Yeah. So again, we're talking about an outdoor sauna. So the approach is exactly the same as a garden shed. So you don't need to worry too much about planning unless you're, you know, unless you're planning a massive garden sauna or yeah, an outdoor sauna. You do need some type of foundation. So if you have paving down already or something like that, then you're fine. You just need to make sure that what you're putting on top of it can bear it. You will need electricity supply. Mm. It's not quite as simple as just plugging it in. You will need electrician to wire it up because there's a lot of safety elements around it. Not as many as you might think because it's not a wet structure, right? So it's it's dry, so it's quite uh, quite straightforward. And the space you need is teeny tiny. You can get ones that are one square meter. You could fit, you know, maybe two people in it sitting upright. Right. I mean, just right. So I like think I might get one in my back garden. That's I might even have space for this. A garden shed. Yeah. They're smaller like a than a garden small shed. garden shed. And if you yeah. think about this, the shape and structure. So, I mean, all you need to do is have, you know, two average size people kind of sitting down relatively comfortably. Mm. And that's your tiniest one. You can get them all the way up to kind of eight people saunas and then you can be lying out and that's really, really comfortable. And that can be up to kind of, you know, three, four uh, metres, okay. uh, you know, width and, and, and breadth. But 
Right. Still, so that's, that's gigantic. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So they're small, they're neat, they're cheap to run. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't need a ton of infrastructure to put them no. in uh, because they're not that heavy. So in terms then of the types that you can get, now you've been kind of sending me some snazzy looking ones. Yeah. They're, um, they're quite like, they're not clunky looking. They're quite they're pretty. They're really pretty. So I was trying to look up some nomenclature to describe the different types. And every website seems to have their own style and, and everything. So I'm going to try to describe the shape for you, listeners, so you can understand what I'm talking about. So there's a traditional looking one, which basically just looks like a regular garden shed. And, you know, it's got the sloped roof, which is great for Ireland because we want the rain one mm. runoff. So that's brilliant. Um, and they look lovely. And, you know, if you want to kind of fly under the radar and you don't want your neighbours knowing <laughs> that you're outside, you know, warming yourself up in your disguise sauna. It as a shed. You can disguise it as a shed. So that's a great option if you like that kind of more traditional look and you don't want to stand out. The ones I absolutely love are the barrel Saunas. So you've seen these, they're just a round shape. They look like something out of Lord of the Rings from Hobbiton. You know, they're, mm. they're gorgeous little things. Um, and they're slightly more efficient to heat because the rounded shape cuts off some unused space. Oh, so you're right, up fair enough. The ergonomic space. thing. Yeah, very ergonomic. There's then these gorgeous ones. They're kind of these pod saunas. They're kind of almond shaped. Now, I do like those. They look Love very that. stylish. Love that. You know, that beehive, hot mm. looking shape. I think they are gorgeous. Really beautiful design. Um, then there's these very cool ones. So if, you're, if your home is more of a modern aesthetic and you're into something a bit more uh, new looking, these kind of cool cube shapes with the curved corners, you know, it looks like the shape of an app on your phone. Oh, <laughs> right. Okay. Take a word for that one. And that looks really, really cool. So those are great. You can get all sorts of high tech, high spec on these things. You can get built in speakers. You can get different types of mood lighting um, and you can bring things in with you, you know, to do things with air quality. I mean, I'm thinking of the Himalaya rock salt yeah. cubes and all that. Or what the, I really the, love. The eucalyptus oils and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. One. What I love if you're going for, you know, a bit of a bit of something extra is ones that have a little bit of an outdoor uh, overhang and a little seating because I get very hot very quickly I don't want to stay in the, for too long and you don't want to be stumbling around outside and sitting on your wet garden bench and trying to cool off so you know a little I can't see that picture now you know that on your roof <laughs> there's the visual you coming out and, <laughs> and stumbling around on your rooftop with the dog no we're Warning not going to do that right. so a little dry. bench outside okay to cool down a little built in seating All outside right. I think that looks great yeah okay now um, okay so the hard question now Jen cost. The what end, are we looking point. at? Now, it, it wasn't the unbelievable sticker shock I thought it was going to be. And again, you're, this is plug and play. You know, there isn't a huge amount of installation required here. You're ready to go as opposed to retrofitting an entire room. The cheapest one I found for a small two-person standard looking one was 2250 Well, that's not bad. It's, I mean... It's not ridiculous. I thought you were going to say a multiple of that. Yeah, it's not okay. ridiculous. And even up to the really expensive, you know, big, you know, eight-person uh, one large space and all that kind of stuff you're looking at 9,000 and bear in mind with all that you need to bring in an, an electrician and somebody to install it yeah so that's going to bring the cost up a little bit just because to, 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 you want that done properly and securely yeah. and all that and you don't need planning permission or any of that stuff for it you're not going to be putting granny in it to live there yeah. anytime soon right realistically I mean three grand and you're, you're good to go are there any Irish suppliers selling them I found a wonderful website and they were very responsive so I'll give them a shout out a room outside so they have showrooms down in Limerick and in Wexford and they have I spoke about this before they have also the infrared saunas so the infrared and the regular ones. So, right. 
to go back to this, right, the regular saunas have a stove in them and they heat up the air so that when you walk in the door, you're, you know, you're hit with a wall of hot air and you're roasting and that's how it works. Very straightforward. You can get wood burning stoves or electric stoves. So with the infrared one then, you're, yeah. you're not getting that, that kind of steam or or the coals or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, you know steam and coals. Okay. And if you like that, if you want the steam and coals, you need to get the regular sauna because you need the stones that will get hot. And then you need like so. a chimney because you have to release the, You'll need the a chimney for the if you want to get a wood burning stove the finish you'll one. need a chimney yeah. that's okay. the traditional okay. finish one if you're just getting a electric stove you might not need a chimney um, and the steam you want to kind of trap the steam in there but the infrared this just heats you it doesn't heat the air so when you walk into it first of all it doesn't feel hot all right it still needs about 15 minutes for the, the heater to get hot but it doesn't heat the air so you're not breathing in hot air I think that's why I love it I don't okay. get a dry throat it just warms you up now, you're not being microwaved here, are you? You're not. No, that's a okay. different spectrum. Uh, different spectrum. It's very safe. You Infrared don't UV is very or anything like that. No, UV okay. is the other end of the light oh, spectrum right. and there's none of that. Infrared is, is very, very There you safe. go, folks. That's the science bit on the home <laughs> show for you. And never let it be said. We don't cover all the bases. Uh, now, Jennifer, I believe in your research, you've actually managed to convince somebody to buy one of these things. Shout out to my dad. <laughs> This may come as a surprise to you, but there's a sauna coming your way. It's going into the back garden. But they're just wonderful. I mean, they, you know, they're really. Yeah, they don't. That's like, not, that's such an unselfish gift. <laughs> <laughs> I will be home every single weekend from now until the rest of uh, the rest of uh, time. This sauna yeah. lifetime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> OK, how interesting. Right. Well, listen, if you uh, out there, if any listeners actually have a sauna in your garden, and I'm thinking of people in Wexford, specifically if this, uh, this uh, company is down there, because can you imagine anything nicer than look? Looking out on the Wexford coast, looking out at the sea from your sauna in your back garden, let us know at the home show at newsdrop.com and send us in a picture of the sauna, maybe with you in it. Uh, Jennifer, that is all very interesting. Now, I know I'm going to ask you a final question now because having got the sauna in and you will be getting the sauna in, you want to do a little bit of design work. You're just not going I to leave can't it alone. Just leave it as it is. So yeah. go on, give us a couple of quick tips then. Here's what I'm thinking I need some hooks on the outside for towels because you don't want to be sprinting across your garden with all the neighbours looking at you in your nip nip there we go you're going to want some nice flip flops maybe some nice outdoor slippers to be walking across the garden get some Haviana nice or otherwise in. yeah Haviana spent that much you might as well go get full tilt get some nice paving in get some nice stones on the paving okay. do all that I would like a nice little thermos flask of cold water we can come back to the Stanley Cups or whatever you're having yeah. yourself but something okay. like that you know you're really going to be thirsty I would be putting in an outdoor shower beside this thing because, as I said before, I quite like the cold and I love it alone an outdoor right. shower. I know we've spoken about this at length, but I really love them. And then finally, why would you not put up some fairy lights and some festoons? Because you put them up on everything. I mean, they're going to be there anyway, so just put, yeah. <laughs> All right, OK. Well, listen, um, uh, thanks a million for researching that and, and going to all the trouble of buying one. Jenny, <laughs> above and beyond the call of duty for the home for show this week. Uh, it's unlikely, but you can have me round and we'll, we'll do, we'll do an, uh, an outside broadcast from inside your sauna. We'll see how that goes. All right. No video, listen, audio okay. only. Um, listen, thanks a million. Uh, that is absolutely fantastic stuff and uh, you can find out a little bit more all about that I'm positive uh, and confident you will put uh, up something on that on your Instagram page which is Workers Cottage uh, on Instagram and you can have a look at what Jen does with that uh, in due course 
And that is all we have time for on the show today. We're all hot and bothered now after all of that. We need to cool down uh, out of our sauna. And uh, if you'd like to get involved in the show, if you'd like to send us in uh, suggestions for a guest or a topic, uh, whether it's saunas or otherwise, well then please do. You can do so at the home show at newstalk.com or you'll find me over on Instagram, X and all the other stuff at Sinead Ryan 100. Thanks to producer Aidan McKelvey. Stephen McLoon was on sound. Have a fantastic weekend and we will be back next Saturday at 8am. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Saturday morning at 8 on News Talk.